Hey everyone, and welcome to this special Soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. Soapbox podcasts are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these special editions paid to be here. Now, that's the usual disclaimer, uh, but in this podcast, there has to be an additional disclaimer. Uh, I'm actually a little bit involved with the business that we're featuring today, uh, and I'll very quickly explain how that came to be. Uh, Airlock came on board as a risky business sponsor sometime, I think around 2018, uh, and they just did a snake oiler slot or something, uh, but I was, you know, immediately impressed with what they've built uh, and... I stayed in touch with the founders and after a while I found myself making like suggestions to them around things like messaging and how to talk about the product and things they should be promoting uh, and then I found myself actively promoting Airlock in my spare time. Uh, it was something I was telling my CISO friends about when I talked to them like hey these guys from Australia have actually figured out how to do allow listing without it turning into a time vampire you should check them out it's really good or people I knew who were struggling to do this sort of thing with Microsoft tools I would tell them you absolutely have to check this out uh, and from there I wound up mentioning them quite a lot on the show and there was no financial incentive for me to do that but eventually the airlock team said to me hey you know, you're doing all of this promo for us, you're singing our praises, so we'd like to give you what amounts to a small financial interest in the company. And uh, I gladly accepted. So there's the full history and disclaimer of how I became Airlock Digital's chief hype officer. Uh, anyway, this podcast uh, is going to feature a great interview with two of Airlock's founders, uh, Chief Executive Dave Cottingham and CTO Daniel Shell. Now, about a decade ago, Dave was struggling to actually roll out effective allow listing programs with existing technology uh, to his Australian government clients. And allow listing is actually a requirement in some government departments here. And the existing tech both Microsoft native tooling and third-party software was really quite bad. So that's when David and Daniel, who worked at a security software distributor, put their heads together and decided to build some rudimentary allow listing software. And they just kept developing it against a market backdrop that said allow listing is too hard. And now, you know, flash forward years and years, and they're running a very, very successful company that makes an extremely useful tool. So in this interview, you're going to hear from David and Daniel on what sort of allow listing you can do with Microsoft's own tools, why third-party tools didn't take off previously, and what you can actually expect uh, to achieve if you go down the allow listing path, like depending on what tools you've chosen. I started off by asking Airlock's chief executive, Dave Cottingham, what a successful allow listing uh, project actually looks like. Here's what he said. We need to get organizations to a point where they have good coverage across their endpoints, they are actively and proactively blocking untrusted executions because so many allow listening programs, people just implement them. They get to observation or audit mode and they're seeing all the executions, but they're not actually doing the proactive prevention. And also they're managing exceptions well. One of the biggest challenges with allow listing deployments is you're, you might uh, stop users from doing what they need to do for 30 minutes. And if you end up in a situation where you are stopping an executive from joining a WebEx meeting that they need to be on, then you'll find that the control gets unwound in the business very, very quickly due to customer, you know, oh, customer dissatisfaction. So you need to manage those exemption methodologies really well within the business to keep the business happy as well. So let's start at the beginning, right? So, uh, you know, a company that's looking to do allow listing, first of all, where should they start? And second of all, what are their options? 
Yeah, so the first thing you need to do is really decide on the maturity of your allow listing deployment. And a big part of that question on deciding the maturity is why are you actually doing this? Why are you doing allow listing? Is it to control what applications that your users are going to run or is it to prevent malware? Because depending on your answer to that question, there's two different sort of deployments that you're going to end up performing within your organization. So, um, and a great model to base that maturity question off is, is one from the Australian uh, Cybersecurity Center. Um, there's a, a decentralate maturity model where they list out four maturity scales for allow listing and zero is not implemented or you're just in audit mode. One is you're proactively blocking executables. Two is you're doing executables and the associated software libraries. And three, you're doing all that plus you're preventing bypasses as well through the implementations of things like the Microsoft recommended block rules. Now you can see by the types of rules that are there is on maturity level one, when you're blocking executables only, you're really just controlling what applications people are allowed to launch or not. Whereas if you're looking at something like maturity level two or three, you're really into blocking malware, which is preventing bypasses, preventing application library loads. And it's a really important question to ask. The other thing you want to consider as well is what security standards are you trying to meet? Are there any sort of uh, requirements in your particular area where, which you're trying to hit and satisfy with allow listing? And once you've got a good handle of that, you can really take that information and then properly evaluate the market and the technologies on the market and understand their limitations. So you can say, uh, you know, to something like like Microsoft with AppLocker, can you block executable scripts, bypasses, uh, and implement all these block lists? And what does the implementation of that look like at scale? And when you start posing those questions to the technology, rather than just jumping into it, you can really get a sense of what the administrative overhead is going to be um, for that. The, the reason people fail with these deployments is because they just pick something off the shelf, they jump in head first, they don't really understand where they're going, and they just start churning through exceptions that are on their endpoint once they, once they start getting all that data, and they just tr start trying to make it quiet. But there's never really an end because they haven't defined the targets in the first place. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about AppLocker, right? Because, you know, as you said, like the uh, a sort of low level of this is, uh, a low maturity level of this is just preventing users from being able to run applications that aren't approved, right? So where, you know, 20 years ago, people might just restrict user accounts and call it a day. I'm guessing even to hit that low level of maturity, you're talking about a control layer that actively will block the execution of untrusted applications. Is that right? Yeah, and AppLocker can block executables on endpoints. You know, it does a really good job of controlling what users can and cannot run. In my opinion, and based on some of Microsoft's early messaging when they release the control, that's really the intent of AppLocker to control the behavior of uh, of users on an endpoint. So it's it's almost like a SOE enforcement tool, right? Correct. And, you know, you can get visibility of binaries that are, that are on the endpoint. But as soon as you try and dial it up to let's start blocking all of these associated libraries, you're going from, you know, a much smaller amount of files to hundreds of thousands of files that you need to handle. And that starts to become really, really challenging uh, through things like group policy. And there are some key requirements, I guess, of allow listing that every organization needs to have in order to be successful. And one of those is centralized visibility. Uh, you need to make sure that you're getting all the events centrally so you can action them. And with something like AppLocker, you will need to have a scene product. You'll need to be picking up those events. You'll also need to be processing those events so you can make sense of them. And then you need to take that and put 
that information back into policy in some sort of way that's really quick because remember um i mentioned yeah that you mentioned the 30 minute delay the for the executive who wants to get on an important yeah. zoom and call if, yeah if you have to put it back in and say hey okay so for that to apply you need to just log off and log back on again uh you know people tend to not get very happy with you and and that's another key requirement which is the ability to update rapidly and frequently you need to turn this around quickly Ideally, you need context to make informed trust decisions. The other thing that we, you know, is, a, is an interesting discussion point, which is how do you know what to trust, right? Um, you know, you're getting all this file information in and so much time in allow listing is spent looking at a file and saying, what is that? That's interesting. Um, you know, it's the ability to, to provide context on that to make good trust decisions. And well, and, the, and, and, the, and AppLocker doesn't really provide you much context apart from this thing was published on this date and is signed by this publisher. That's about all you get, isn't it? Yeah, that's about it. It's just really looking at the, the file metadata. And, you know, I spent before starting Airlock so much time doing engineering on those type of events to try and enrich them, you know, looking at things like taking the hashes and then enriching them via third-party intelligence services and obtaining <laughs> yeah. that and 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 building all that up. And that is just so much work um, to try and keep running and, and make sure it's reliable as well. Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to diss Microsoft when I say this because I'm sure that they have the resources whereby if they wanted to, they could probably do a, you know, have a much better go at this. Um, but it is kind of a lipstick on a lipstick on a pig scenario when you're trying to do mm -hmm. that. When you're trying to get to those higher levels of maturity with AppLocker, it's just not really what it's designed to do. Yes. And that's, you know, AppLocker has a place and it does provide a benefit. And I don't ever want to discourage, uh, you know, end users from doing that. But you've just got to understand the limitations that you need to work within and uh, make sure that you define what success looks like before you have a go. You know, again, uh, allow listing, people say it's too hard. It's because they picked up something like AppLocker. They tried to drive it to maturity level, sort of two or three, and they've just said, I can't do it. Now, one thing you mentioned uh, a couple of times actually was uh, control of libraries. Why don't you explain why controlling and placing some restrictions on libraries is important? Increasingly, attackers are assuming that organizations are running allow listing. You know, a, a lot of people think that, that there's a lot of organizations out there that don't run it, but it is becoming increasingly prevalent out there. Uh, so even even, even if we're talking about lower maturity levels, I think. Yeah, 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 correct. So uh, attackers are just either running malware just based on a DLL that they're you know injecting or they're placing into another process, and they're they're trying to get away from just that sort of executable deliverable. There there are a lot of ways that you can load DLLs into memory. Well, maybe Daniel, you're probably a good want to answer this actually yeah like i i'd say there's a lot of things it's not just like it's not just hey people are blocking exes from loading it's also trying to avoid edr or av solutions as well that are just are more likely to detect an executable but if you can sneak a dll into a microsoft signed binary then maybe the other vendors are more scared about maybe blocking or preventing that so they'll allow that through right so they're just trying to avoid detections at the end of the day or um and well the avoid DLLs detections and, and and avoid controls right yeah, yeah, well, for sure, they're trying to sidestep it as well. And, you know, this is like HTA apps and all these other things as well, scripts, you know, when people are moving laterally. Like, it just it just sort of, like, maturity ratchets up. And that, and just going back to the AppLocker conversation, I'd say, you know, and, and this goes into, like, choosing your tooling. If you're, like, one of the maturity level three requirements, as an example, is, you know, you need to implement Microsoft's recommended driver block rules, right, to stop drivers loading. 
but AppLocker, for example, doesn't apply to the system account at all, and it can't. So it actually can't see a driver load. Um, so the, you, you know, if you choose that as a tool, you just can't reach that level of maturity. So selection is really important to echo what David said before. And you know, Microsoft also, you know, they didn't solve, they had AppLocker, they've had Locker for a long time, and now they've also, you know, for the last few years, they've been working and improving Windows Defender application control, which obviously technically is a like maybe an evolution of AppLocker as far as it is very a technical security tool. You're built internally for Microsoft for particular reasons like Windows S and stuff back from the heyday. And now they've released and people are trying to implement that as a solution, which, which is technically capable, but it still has all of the problems of AppLocker, even more from a usability standpoint, where it's like you know, you're dealing with XML files of configuration and you still need to pull all these events together and make decisions. And there's no sort of room for exceptions or group-based exceptions, which AppLocker has. So it gets really difficult to then be able to say like, okay, well, and you know, we, we see a lot of people talking where there'll be a conversation like, oh, I can get my AppLocker working on this machine. I got it working on it. And with WDAC, which is sort of the Microsoft recommendation right now is like, you need AppLocker plus WDAC. So you bring two solutions side by side, which can get tricky. And then they also go, oh, you know, I got working on this PC, but when, when, they're, when they're talking about an organization of 50, 100, 10,000 endpoints at scale, they're not considering that as well. And that's really important. Like how will this actually work in my organization? David, I can see, I can see you itching to jump in there. I've got a, yeah, I've got, I think I've got a, got a simpler answer. I think DLLs are just as important as executables because at the end of the day, they're just code, right? Yeah. They're just in a slightly different form. The thing is, is that attackers favor DLLs because they can put them inside of other processes. Many, you know, uh, administrators, when they're trying to look for something malicious on the system, you know, they'll look at the processes that are running, but you're not listing DLLs there, right? So they're much more stealthy and you can uh, hide them in ways that, uh, you know, unless you really have great monitoring and telemetry of the endpoint, you typically don't see them. Right. But the challenge with DLLs is you're obviously exponentially increasing the amount of files that you have to handle when you're doing allow listing. And also it starts to get into the territory where many vendors tend to sign their executables. They do sign their DLLs as well, but some vendors might miss out the odd DLL here or there, which makes it a little bit challenging. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, is it the same conversation or is it a related conversation, which is the lolbin conversation, right? Because... <laughs> there's some there's some pretty standard bypass techniques that apply to AV, to EDR, and indeed to a lot of allow listing solutions, which is you can use these, you know, living off the land binaries or lol bins uh, that are published by Microsoft. They're on every system and you can you can use them to get stuff into memory, right? And and unless you have some controls on those lol bins, yeah, things get pretty tough. Yeah. And I, I think it's the same conversation. It's just, again, it's just driving that maturity more and more. So mm. generally what we'll do when, uh, you know, we're advising customers to deploy within the airlock product, we handle bypasses and low bins in a section of the product called block listing, where we start to look into the controlling of uh, application behaviors. What we do uh, is we tend to say to the customers, focus on getting your allow listing deployment done first and into enforcement mode. So you can block DLLs, executable scripts, and you can get a good level of coverage of enforcement because that's a huge risk reduction to your organization. 
And then what we do is we then go through a process of let's now look at the lull bins. Let's look at what sort of frameworks you have within your organization that attackers can abuse and then really ratchet that up to the next level. So, you know, it's it's also important when we're having that maturity conversation to understand that it is a journey as well. Um, you know, it's it's just important to know that you can get there with whatever technology yeah. you're using. And, and I'll add in there because a lot of people who've actually read the Microsoft recommended block list rules on their first glance will go, we'll never be able to run this in our organization. Like, like because you pretty much like you can't run PowerShell, you can't run yeah. you know, developer tools. There's just all these things in there that aren't allowed. And you know, we kind of use the same learning process when you're sort of implementing the block rules that we do for our auditing or allow listing, where we say, well, let's just have a look, let's simulate what that is. And then you go, well, okay, so the PowerShell binaries are called by the VPM and apps, this other app, this other app, and then we allow it in that way, right? So then you sort of tune the block list. And before you need to enforce it, you can then go, okay, well, I've tuned it now. I'm seeing no more exceptions. Great. Now we can turn it on. Yeah. And we've got the, you know, we've tuned it for our environment. And well, I'll, this, I'll say, this box yeah. is being used by a member of our development team, mm. which is why they happen to be loading development related software. So maybe we should allow that, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and then we've also added a lot of um, exclusion features in the problem when there's certain situations where, you know, we have something like called self-service where you can say, hey, this group of users like developers, <laughs> you know, they might need to install ad hoc applications more often in lots of orgs. They've got local admin privilege to install their random applications and such, and they don't want to work. And traditionally, developers or engineering as a group would be someone that's in the business would push back on allow listing often very strongly or just end up getting excluded or staying in audit mode or something like that. Um, but we've done like lots of deployments now, like in defense contractors and such, where it's like 5,000 endpoints, all in enforcement mode for developers, and it's fine. And what we really allowed them to do is say, there's a self-service capability, right? So the user goes, something's blocked. Okay, they can just themselves, you know, interact with the, the what, tray icon, give themselves a temporary exception for the time they need. But of course, everything that's happening during that exception is being sent to the server, reviewed and trusted. And then the next time they try to run that app, they no longer need the exception because at the back end, someone's done the lift there. Now, and look, we're, we're already talking bells and whistles for Airlock, right? But I mm. want to try to steer this away from being just to talk about your tech, right? Because, yeah, sure. because allow listening, like, I, you know, everybody knows, right? Everybody who's a regular listener to the podcast knows that I'm absolutely a massive fan of Airlock. I mean, even as I said at the, at the intro there, you know, I was, I was pitching this stuff to CISO friends in my spare time, right? <laughs> like, cause I, mm. cause I really, really like it. But why don't we talk a little bit about why allow listing has become just a no-go zone. I remember when, you know, it was bit nine came along, like it was more than 10, was it more than 10 years ago? I think it was more than 10 years ago. But, you know, it came along as an allow listing startup. It didn't stick, you know, it just didn't have the market success that it would have required to keep going. And it wound up being what acquired by Carbon Black or whatever, and absorbed into Carbon mm. Black or whatever. You know, we've seen companies EOLing their allow listing stuff, right? The market for this stuff outside of Airlock is quite small. There are a few other players, but it's quite small. David, this is a good question for you. Where did it all go wrong for allow listing as a technology? Because I even made a joke in a recent interview where if, if you had have tried to go out and fundraise on the pitch for Airlock a few years ago, I think you've been running for like five to seven years, something like that. If you had gone out then to the VC community and said, I want money for this business, they would have laughed at you. How did it become such a poison category? Yeah, we, we actually asked a few companies early on in the idea phase, like, hey, this is something that's really interesting. Do you, you know, do, do you want to work together on it? And they were like, no, I'm not, you know, I don't see the, the, the market potential there. Um, <laughs> I, I think... There's, there's a few reasons for that. I, I think one 
big one is the ecosystem challenge, right? And it's just down to do with the software supply chain and, and software signing, right? Software signing, uh, which really helps, you know, uh, implementation like allow listing where you can check the digital signature of, of files really does help the, uh, you know, you implement that control. And it just wasn't as ubiquitous uh, 10 years ago so as it are, was are, today. Are you saying some of these packages, some of these loud listing packages were kind of predicated on the software ecosystem doing things that it never wound up doing? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, now we have uh, some of our customers that will, will lobby cu uh, other big organizations to sign their files and, and they'll end up signing them and, and increasing their coverage of signing over time, which is really great to see. So, you know, now we've also got great frameworks on platforms such as Linux and Mac OS that allows us as a vendor to tap into them. And then really say for something like Mac OS, allow listing the entire base operating system is simply a matter of trusting software signing, which is the yeah. difficult. Well, I mean, you're, talk, you're talking about Mac's endpoint security API, right? In that case, right. and it's eBPF, isn't it, for Linux? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, so we use we use something called FA Notify, which is in the kernel, and it allows us to to get callbacks completely driverless. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's enabled us to solve that Linux challenge of now you can update the kernel, you can reload your agent without recompiling drivers all the time. It's it's fantastic. So, um, so I mean, look, I, I guess what you're saying is that um, perhaps it wasn't so much a case that these vendors were doing a bad job. It's just that the software ecosystem was not ready for it. That's, that's one part, yes. Uh, yeah. the, the other part was, I think that generally a lot of organizations or, or sorry, a, a lot of security companies we're making tools for security people, right? Yeah. And they're not the ones that want to be running an allow listing program within side an organization. The people that you need to drive your allow listing program are people that are managing the SOE, that are deploying patches out there inside the organization, and it needs to be operationalized within the business. We've talked a little bit about exception management and the fact that you need to make sure that exceptions are delivered to the right people when they need to be. And a security team doesn't want to be picking up that work, right? So really what we did with, with Airlock is we, we just found that it was simply too hard to use. So a lot of our engineering, we spent time trying to make a solution that is really simple, repeatable, easy to integrate within your business processes rather than developing this, you know, Swiss army knife security tool that, you know, is you need a security background to drive, right? So yeah. we, we're targeting those those administrators within the business so you can have it as a tool that they use as part of their day-to-day. -day. And I think that's a key uh, difference about how we attack the development of, of the product and, and why we came about. Daniel, uh, let, let me ask you this, right? Because I am curious. Of the people who are not using your tooling, right? Mm -hmm. Of the people who've been... Because I imagine... And I, well, I know, right, that uh, a lot of your early users were people who were very convinced by the allow listing approach, uh, even before you sort of existed. And then when you came along with a tool, they were like, okay, great, this is just going to make that a, that a bit easier. But of the people who weren't using your tool and of other people who, who are maybe doing allow listing and have opted not to buy Airlock, like what, what are the successful approaches uh, that people have taken that haven't involved your software? Um, <laughs> well... There's probably not, you know, if they're trying to do allow listing, they're probably actually having, they're probably struggling, to be honest. We, we see a lot of organizations that come to us 
um, and they say we want to do that. And if they do, like if they, if they do a demo, often we'll do a demo, and they go, oh, it looks really great. And there's either sort of two things that happen. If they if they sort of don't go ahead of us immediately, this is sort of what they'll go for. They'll either go, we've already got E5 licensing. So we've yeah. got to try. We've got to try WDAC Applock <laughs> because it's free. The mirage, then, the mirage of E5, as uh, yeah, caught so many people in many situations. Yeah. So it's free, and then they spend $200,000 on consultants <laughs> to try to make it work. So free yeah. is a relative term. Um, and, you're, and, and you know, our sales guy, like Glenn here in Australia, he'll say, we'll, see, we'll talk to you in six months. And then they do come back, right? Yeah. Go, yeah, yeah, it didn't work, but we had to go through the process. Um, yeah. You know, the other thing that we see is really just maybe it's more of a confusion or, or, or in, the, in the marketplace, like especially where we're based, allow listing is like a, a compliance thing, right? Yeah. And um, so every vendor that does other things will try to find a way to tie their solution to what they do. So we have a lot of PAM vendors in the market that say, we do allow listing, we allow you to do that, right? And we make it super easy and they'll do a demo. And that's, again goes back to what sort of David was saying at the start, where people don't really understand what they're doing or what they're, what they're aiming for with their deployment or the security outcomes. They'll go, oh, that looks easy. And we need PAM as well. So they'll buy that. And then they'll just realize this is tool does not achieve these outcomes. And again, it's just months of projects and stuff. And then, you know, again, we'll end up talking to them the next, in the next renewal cycle or something along those lines. So you can't really think of, of how people have actually managed to do this uh, with other tooling. Not, not really. I, you know, I guess some some people are just happy with the the that, that level one maturity, right? So some people are like, hey, we use yeah. our blocker, um, we block executables from the downloads folder and the desktop. That's enough. Yeah, but I mean, and, yeah. but this was going to lead me to my next question, right? Which is, you know, as you go up through these maturity levels. I'm guessing you kind of get diminishing returns, right? Like even just doing that base level app locker thing that gets you a long way, right? It's, you know, people should absolutely be doing that. Um, but then it's really like you go up to that next level, which is where it's more of an anti-malware thing. And that again is a is a big jump. And then you progressively get smaller and smaller jumps as you, as you move up, right? So you sort of get diminishing returns all the way to the top, like most most controls. Is that is that kind of how you see it shaking out in in practice most of the time? Well, well, definitely with us, I guess, you know, you cannot, you know, we, what, what we do, you can't do not DLLs. And I think that's based on the conversation before is that if you just do DXEs, yes, you're doing, app, like David said, app control, right? You're stopping apps that the user can run. But once you're talking about malware and the, you know, and that's yeah. why I'd say like where I would differentiate app control from allow listing is the intent of allow listing is malware control. When mm -hmm. the intent of app control is often Bob can't run Photoshop and you get into licensing and deployment <laughs> questions and stuff where it's like, that's not what we're about, right? Yeah. Um, and I'd say, as that maturity increases, what we find really interesting in customer deployments is, so you know, the general the general workflow is like, hey, you deploy some agents, you learn what's your environment, you tune your policy, you deploy more agents, tune the policy, okay, you go to enforcement mode, you then turn on this block listing, put on the Microsoft recommended block list rules. Um, but then also, I've seen customers go beyond that, beyond the maturity models where they go into application hardening. So a lot of customers come to me and they'll say like, hey, we don't want Edge to spawn any child processes and stuff like that right so they're looking for you know the unknown unknowns or vulnerabilities that might lead to something so they're you know then even further hardening the block listing and that goes a little bit back to where david was talking about before as well where it's like you know the it operations team in my opinion in 90 percent of our customers runs the day-to-day -day of the listing, right you know the strategy of like hey well we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about yeah. the overhead there right because that's the biggest pushback i get is like people think that it's harder than it is i mean it still requires effort but they think it's like this thing where you've got to sit in front of a computer hitting yes no all day right which which just is not <laughs> is not actually how it works anymore um but you did mention something interesting, which is, yeah, they don't want Edge being able to spawn processes and stuff. Like, it's probably worth pointing out that if you've got, if there is a 
bad enough ODA in any of the software that you use, even allow listing, it's not going to help you, right? Because an attacker can stay in process. There's a lot they can do. It might slow them down when it comes to the lateral movement phase, but this is not an anti-exploit technology and you don't claim that it is. Yeah. And you're right about the lateral movement. You know, what we generally say is, yes, the attacker will exploit the process. They can sit inside the process, but then they're going to want to move. And that's when they really need to be quiet, uh, laterally moving around the network. You don't want to drop anything on disk. Uh, you know, they, they pretty much need to get to a place from vulnerability exploitation to trying to get a legitimate account or some credentials or something so they can move, you know, without having to have code. And then not, not execute anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they can still do it, right? Like, so the example that I use is like if someone had an O-Day in CrowdStrike, because you're typically deployed alongside CrowdStrike, you know, in typical airlock environments, CrowdStrike's agent can spin up PowerShell because it needs to be able to do that, right? So if you could own CrowdStrike somehow, you could start popping PowerShell. And, you know, there's probably some stuff you can do there. But I think the point is, as you mentioned, they have to be quiet and they need to be quieter than usual because once you've got airlock into your environment, yeah. you you know, you the amount of stuff, the amount of events bubbling out of that environment goes down pretty substantially. So shady stuff tends to stick out a bit more. Yeah, it's it's like anything, you know, define the behavior of your environment and then attackers need to work within that. And that's the most effective thing you can do. And I'm not talking about sort of defining behavior in terms of, you know, get an ML algorithm and, and learn everything that's going on in the computers and the different yeah. ways that people could do something. It's these are files and they tend to be far more static than than user behaviors, right? You know, if you're you're getting new files that are dropped in, you know, some Windows system directory, they stick out. Um, and it's you know, a fantastic control to reduce the time to detection. Yeah, now we've kind of spoken already about how from a deployment perspective, this is the way to do it. And I have no problem saying I am on board with that, right? Like it is it is the way to do it. But a lot of people ask me when they're, they're like, oh, you know, you're, you're doing stuff with those, those airlock people, like, you know, allow listings really hard to maintain. What would you say to people who, who, who say that? Because look, yes, there is a management overhead with something like allow listing, which in my view is more than offset by the amount of cleaning up and other stuff that, you know, you, you save effort elsewhere and what you save is more than you have to put into this. But, you know, how would you describe the amount of effort in a typical enterprise that's in full enforcement mode with your product? Like how many hours a day is an admin going to need to spend interacting with the airlock console to make sure that things work? Yeah, I'd say it's half an hour a day or every couple of days, right? But it's important to know that's not just one admin doing this. Like, you know, the allow listing as a strategy for the organization spans across the business. So you're going to have the operations team doing, you know, maybe some of the learning, some of the you know, untrusted files or worrying about patching that's going on. Um, you've got the help desk team, maybe handing out exception codes if that's necessary for your workflow that you will have. And your security team is like, you know, hardening the deployment is right. They're going, hey, we've got this report of these indicators. We want to block these shards. We want to block anything spawned by this process. So there's all different parts of the business working on it, but they all work on it on their own schedule. But you know, the overall maintenance of it, half an hour a day. And are people sort of surprised by that? They they think you need a team of eight eight foot. Yeah, they they'll think you'll, you know people assume you'll need eight full time heads. Yeah, because right? I always think you know people think it's like you remember when Homer Simpson got that job in the nuclear power plant and he set up the little wood you know the water woodpecker thing just to hit the yes key on his keyboard like yeah. the the y key. <laughs> That, that, that's what like they that. think. There's, there's, there's eight of those on different keyboards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I that's think, about I, it. I I think I'll touch on you know some things that make general you know, allow listing deployments easier for businesses. You know, Daniel mentioned roles and responsibilities, and that's key, right? You, you need to make sure that you plan out who is managing the allow listing 
you know, inside the organization. And, and one thing that really makes it easier as well is figuring out what your software deployment methodologies are, because obviously one thing that you need to do with allow listing is allow new software or changes inside your environment to execute. And if you have a defined software deployment methodology, let's say you deploy via CCM or you, you have a process where you stage software through teams before it gets to the endpoint, you can, uh, you know, gear your allow listing management around that process. So part of that uh, stage of getting the software out, make sure that you've got it allowed before you actually get that software to prod to minimize some of that friction. You know, quite often we talk about how much of a business problem, you know, allow listing can be just because it does require you to define some of those deployment business activities and, 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 and define a process of how you, how you manage the, the allow list regardless of your technology. I want to point out something funny here, right, to, to end this this podcast with, which is we've been talking, you know, I'll probably trim this down a bit, but we've been talking for about 36 minutes now. And not once have we felt the need to talk about the effectiveness of allow listing, right? Because that's the thing. It's never been under question. The problem with allow listing has never been, is this an effective control if you're doing it comprehensively? The problem has always been about the management. Yeah, and the general concept is only going to be required more and more in the future. You know, this yeah. was something that 10 years ago, people said, well, it's not practical. So you've got to only apply it to those critical systems, you know, systems in OT, your just your domain controllers, things like that. But, you know, uh, this concept applies to everything and it will into the future. You know, part of the reason that you know, we've got uh, mobile operating systems like like iOS that are very secure is because a large part of their security is managing uh, what software can run on the device through yeah. really good software attestation. Well, an interesting, that's an interesting thing, right? To say that the iOS ecosystem is probably the biggest uh, example of, um, of allow mm. listing that's, that's worked well. It's interesting what you said too about people running this stuff on their domain controllers and stuff because I know that a big path to juicy, juicy sales for for airlock is some com company comes in and you know they just they might have a team that is running app locker for their service you know or, or a couple of people whose job it is and they leave go to the next job whatever and no one can run an app locker anymore so the customer comes in they might buy you know 200 licenses for their servers they roll it out and then they go okay we're in and then they put it on their desktops right like this is a fairly yeah. standard path to a desktop sale for you Hundred percent. Yeah, we had we had some big customers that they were managing their whole deployment via some PowerShell scripts that were created by former employees, and in their words, they were getting increasingly nervous as you know uh, <laughs> the years went by. That if something breaks, they're in trouble. You must yep. have seen some janky stuff. You must have seen some janky, yeah. janky stuff. I mean, before the company, we created some janky stuff to make it work, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's just reflected onwards. Yeah. Hence the need. All right. Well, Dave Cottingham, Daniel Shell, thank you so much for this, um, uh, for having this conversation with me. I think it's, look, I think it's an, it's an interesting one. It's impossible to sort of separate the conversation from the product. You know, uh, you know, I wanted this to be a, a really a conversation about allow listing and how you can best do it anyway but there's not really another way to do it to the same level as, as, as what you can deliver. As, as you know, as everyone knows, I'm a huge uh, fan. Uh, my joking, you know, I, I have a joke title with you guys, which is uh, Chief Hype Officer and, um, you know, wear it with pride. Uh, it's great to see you both. I know how busy you are. Thanks a lot for taking the time and I'll, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Patrick. Cheers, Patrick. 
That was David Cottingham and Daniel Shell there from Airlock Digital, and you can find them at airlockdigital.com. I do hope you've enjoyed this soapbox edition of the show. Uh, you know, as I as I made clear in the intro, I'm a massive fan of what they've built. Uh, so yeah, do go check them out and uh, and believe you can actually do this these days. Uh, that's it from me this week. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 